Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on March 30th, 2018. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... Lonnie Sue Johnson had been an accomplished amateur musician, a very successful professional commercial artist, and she was a private pilot. So when neuroscientists heard about her case, they realized they could do much more sophisticated memory testing because she had so much that she had once known. That's Mike Lemonick. He's the opinion editor here at Scientific American after a long stint at Time magazine. And his most recent book, his seventh, is The Perpetual Now, a story of amnesia, memory, and love about a woman named Lonnie Sue Johnson who suffered a specific kind of brain damage that robbed her of much of her memory and her ability to form new memories, and what she has revealed to neuroscientists about memory and the brain. We spoke at Scientific American's offices. The origin story for this book is pretty interesting because you're just walking down the street one day. Just walking down the street one day, and uh, a woman walks up to me, and I recognize her right away because I went to middle school with her. This is 50 years ago or something. Um, but I, I recognized her. In fact, I, I uh, began uh, bringing up scenes from middle school in my mind before she even talked to me. And she came up and said, my name is Aline Johnson. I don't know if you remember me. And of course, I was already remembering her. And she asked, do you know what happened to my sister? And I said, no. And she began to explain that her sister, who had been a pretty successful artist, very successful commercial artist, had come down with a, uh, a brain infection. She'd come down with encephalitis about six or seven years before, and it had destroyed her hippocampus and surrounding tissues in the center of her brain. And being a science journalist who has written about memory, I already knew what that meant because there was a famous case in the 1950s of a guy named – he was only known by his initials, H.M., who had the same thing happen to him as a result of surgery. And, and as a result, he could no longer remember much of his past. He had amnesia, but he also had um, – he was not able to form new memories going into the future. So he was trapped in this sort of slice of time. And, and I'd always thought about what a weird state that would be. To be in, I heard about him when I was a college student. To uh, take an intro to psych uh, class. And what were they trying to cure again? They were trying to cure epilepsy with HM. They thought that the seizures that he was having, these terrible seizures, were originating in the hippocampus. And there was an experimental surgery to pull out the hippocampus, destroy it, and cure the seizures, which it did. Unfortunately, nobody knew that this was the seat of memory. And that happened in the 50s. That happened in the 1950s. And as soon as people realized what had happened to him, he became an object of serious neuroscientific investigation because nobody knew at that time where memory was located in the brain or how it worked. And suddenly they had a, a way to get at this problem. And so researchers learned a lot from him. But this new case that your book is about presented – such unparalleled opportunities because of the incredibly rich intellectual and artistic and and mental life that she had led up until this tragedy befell her. Right. So H.M. was uh, – because of his seizures, he had never uh, had a higher education. He never had a job more sophisticated than working on an assembly line. So they could study 
him uh, and look at some of the most basic functions of memory. But Lonnie Sue Johnson, the sister uh, that I was being told about, had been an accomplished amateur musician, a very successful professional commercial artist. Uh, With New Yorker cover artworks? New Yorker cover art, yes. She did, did, I think, five or six covers, and they ran about five of them. Um, She was very much in demand as an illustrator for books and for magazine articles. She did a regular thing with the New York Times for its business section. She was Uh, a pilot. And she was a private pilot. She She owned two planes. She... Which is a very complex skill involving a lot of knowledge and information. So when neuroscientists heard about her case, they realized that it was a much richer, uh, much richer source of information about memory. They could do much more sophisticated memory testing because she had so much that she had once known. And, and uh, so she, she was kind of a uh, HM, the second generation. And before we talk about some of the specifics of the testing, uh, her life without her memory, her, her ability to form uh, many new memories, she still maintains some ability of very, uh, to form new memories of very emotionally charged events. Right. Emotionally charged events or uh, if, you, you know, if you repeat a fact to, to her 100 times or 200 times in a short duration, she'll probably retain it. And she was able to learn without realizing it uh, some new pieces of music. Yes. Yes. And that's, that, that gets into the, to the testing. Um, and it's, again, it builds on what people learned from HM. Right. So again, before we get into the testing yeah. specifics, um, she seems pretty happy. She seems not just happy, joyful. She, she seems to be delighted with life and 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 everything around her the i think the most um uh the most apt word to use to describe her is joyful she has created within her intellectual constraints this world of mental challenges for herself to perform she's she does puzzles all day and drawing yes so so before uh, this uh, this injury uh this infection she was really uh, a driven person. She was always working. She was always creating. She was always looking for new things to do. We didn't mention that in addition to everything else she did, she ended up on a farm in upstate New York where she and a neighbor uh, set up an organic dairy farm. So she was also a businesswoman running an organic dairy. She was, she was just tireless and she could not stand inactivity. And then she gets this brain infection and it destroys so many of her functions and she's not capable of doing anything uh, at first at least uh, in the immediate aftermath of the infection and she's miserable. She's just – she's lethargic. She can't bring herself to initiate any behavior and finally at a certain point, um, her mother and her sister relentlessly working with her to try and bring back her functions – get her to start drawing and get her interested in word puzzles. And it's like you lit a fire under her. Suddenly she becomes obsessed with with uh, creating and illustrating these puzzles. She's working all the time. And yes, she's created this whole world of mental exercise for herself. There must be some kind of a a pleasure circuit that gets activated by 
her solving problems that was always true for her and now within her current situation is still true but the puzzles are the thing that can activate it right right and 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 uh yeah she she and she gets actually kind of impatient and upset if she's not allowed to work on her puzzles for a while she was not sleeping because she didn't want to stop working and her sister had to you know go make sure that the light was out and she was you know, lulling her off to sleep. Yeah, she even has sort of assignments for what she should be doing while she's sleeping. So she she sets up right. this system. Right, right. To you know, to dream about this particular thing or that particular thing. Yeah, um, yeah. So some of the testing is really fascinating. The the musical testing. Their her uh, questions are asked of her about what flying is like, and and this kind of thing. She has some ability to bring back. Now, you talk about episodic and semantic memory, and maybe we should define those and then talk about what she's actually able to bring back in terms of those two kinds of memories. Okay, so episodic memories are memories of specific episodes in your own life. They're also uh, called autobiographical memories. So uh, I start the book talking about this memory of standing up in front of the the entire eighth grade and playing a bugle call on my trumpet for every assembly. And I screwed it up every time. And it was profoundly embarrassing. And my people would come up to me and say, hey, you screwed it up again. It was awful. That was a very specific thing that happened to me. Uh, and I still remember it vividly. Um, so, so that's an episodic memory. A semantic memory is a memory of general facts. So I know that uh, Charles de Gaulle was the president of France. I never met the guy, never thought about him much, but it's a fact. It's a general fact. Or that Pittsburgh is in western Pennsylvania or, uh, or that I grew up in a particular town. It's, it's about me, but it's, it's just a general fact about me. Right. Um, and so those, it turns out, are, are very two, uh, two very different kinds of memory. And when the hippocampus is destroyed – you tend to be better at remembering the general facts than the specific memories. So if we go back to HM, uh, the original case where they – he's the one that taught them this. Uh, they could ask him about, oh, where did you grow up? Oh, I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut. Did you ever go on vacation? Yes, yes. My parents would take us on the Mohawk Trail in Massachusetts. Tell us something that happened to you on one of those vacations. He couldn't remember a thing. Tell us something specific that happened to you in high school. Couldn't remember it. There were only two episodic memories of his entire life that he could bring back after he had this amnesia. And that's when neuroscientists learned that they're not only are they different, but they must be processed differently in the brain. So uh, Lonnie Sue Johnson, similar uh, damage. She cannot remember specific episodes about her life essentially at all, but she can remember general facts. She remembers that she... Or she knows that she flew a plane. She knows that she loved flying a plane. She knows she was an artist. And she could describe the sensation of taking off and landing. She, it, she could do that in a very poetic way, a remarkably poetic way. Uh, but it's not a specific landing. It's just the feeling of landing a plane, the feeling of taking off in the plane, what the ground looks like from a plane. She could talk about that. And the uh, ability to learn a new musical tune. Uh, they they gave her t a tune to practice, and she didn't remember each time that she had already practiced it. But they they had three different 
melodies, and she learned two of them, and one was used as a control where she, she was shown it once, but then wasn't trained on it. Right. So, in fact, the other thing that they learned from H.M., I have to keep going back to him because he's the one who... He's the baseline. He's the baseline, um, was that we talked about episodic memory and and uh, semantic memory, but those are both things you can talk about. You can verbalize, I remember this. There's a whole different category of memory called procedural memory, which we informally call muscle memory. It's the memory of how to do physical things. Right. Like when people say, you'll, you know, it's like riding a bike. Exactly. It is like riding a bike. It's like riding a bike, but you cannot tell me explicitly what you do when you ride a bike, which how, you know, how hard do you push down on this leg and what are you doing with this other leg at the same time and about what about the right hand and what about the left hand and how do you lean and you can't really describe it. Yeah, if you think about walking, you'll probably trip. Exactly. Same idea. You don't know what you what you actually do. You just do it. And what they learned with HM was that his procedural memory and his ability to learn new procedural memories was intact, even though his declarative, his verbalizable memories uh, were mostly destroyed. So uh, they taught him a new skill. He, he learned how to look in a mirror and draw while looking at his hand in a mirror, which is very difficult at first. But Unless you're a dental student. <laughs> right, unless you're a dental student. Um, but, he, but anybody can get better at it with practice. And they, they let him practice every day and he got better. But he never remembered having done the test before. And at one point he said to the, the testers, this is amazing. This should be difficult, but I'm pretty good at it. He did not know that he had been practicing. Similarly with Lonnie Sue Johnson, they actually did an earlier test where they showed her, played her snippets of very well-known melodies. I mean, The Wedding March and Pop Goes the Weasel and just very familiar tunes to anyone. She had no idea what they were. For And for uh, an amateur musician, a, a good amateur musician, that's a little bit surprising. Uh, she also retained the procedural memory of how to play the viola and how to read music, just as he re- she retained language. Uh, and so they, would, they composed a piece of music specifically for her, put it in front of her and said, play this. And she played it. And they would take it away and then put it back again and say, oh, what's this? And it's a piece of music. Play it. And we're talking about seconds later. She would not remember that she'd even seen it before. And one important point, I think, is that the music was composed in a specific way so that a person with musical background would not necessarily be able to anticipate what the next note would be because music has a certain structure that musicians are used to. So if you hear a note, you're pretty sure what the next note is going to be in a a run, for example. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, so they they specifically – uh, created this piece of music to make it very hard to do that with, uh, hard to kind of – it was not a catchy tune. Uh, so she never picked up on it. Um, uh, she was never able to sing it. She would just grind her way through the the difficult uh, sight reading. Then she would do it again. Then she would do it again. And each time she thought she was seeing it for the first time. But in fact, she got better at playing it. And so you might think, well, it's just – Another example of H.M. and his mirror drawing, but in fact, uh, sight reading and playing an instrument are much more complicated tasks than just holding a pencil and, and uh, tracing something in the mirror. Um, they're, they're cognitively intensive. They uh, involve 
listening to make sure you're playing in tune and feeling the notes, uh, you know, on the uh, on the fingerboard and uh, translating the visual stimuli of the notes on the page into movements of your body. So it's extending that understanding of, of how much procedural memory is preserved. The one thing that I was very curious about, I mean, I had been since I was a freshman in college, was what is it like to be in this condition? I mean, there's no way you can know. Uh, but I talked to a neuroscientist who specializes in consciousness, you know, that ephemeral thing called consciousness that we all know what it is, but nobody can describe it. And he made a very good point. He, he talked to me about people who have a certain kind of brain injury that destroys the left side of their visual field in both eyes. And so if they were sitting in a room and you asked them to describe the room, they would describe the right half of the room. And if you say, well, what else? And they say, well, that's it. That's everything that's here. They don't know that there's anything missing. Even, even though, And even if you ask them about the room they grew up in. Yes. They only remember the, the right side. And it's, um, it's not – they don't miss it. They don't feel that there's something missing. It's just not there. It's not part of their existence. And he said, you know, I think that with Lonnie Sue, it's very much like that. This whole huge chunk of her memory is gone, but she doesn't know it's gone. She doesn't miss it. She is perfectly happy in this world where she lives. I mean, people have to take care of her. She couldn't function alone. But as far as she knows, there's nothing really missing. And and so she's happy. And that sort of explains why she's so filled with joy. So what would you summarize as being the the types of important things that these two people, H.M. and Lonnie Sue, have contributed to our understanding of how the brain works. Okay. Well, first I should say there have been other patients mm -hmm. uh, in between H.M. And, and Lonnie Sue, and e each of them was an interesting case in his or her own right, but none of them had the richness of experience that Lonnie Sue did and the intellectual breadth and the the love of wordplay, which she had uh, from the time she was a kid. And the work with Lonnie Sue is, is ongoing. It's ongoing. Oh, yeah. They've barely scratched the surface because she, she uh, poses so many interesting questions that they don't even know what they all are yet. The scientists are, are still figuring out questions to ask of her. But what we learned from HM is that memory is very tied up in this uh, this organ within the brain called the hippocampus. Uh, it's crucial to forming and and retrieving memories, most memories. Um, that we didn't know. We learned from him that, that procedural memory is located somewhere else. And that was mostly it. With some of these other patients, but especially with Lonnie Sue, we're now learning that those simple divisions of memory I talked about earlier are actually – they're much more subtle. There, there are many more distinctions than we thought there were. So um, as one of the scientists said to me, OK, so you say, well, I, I, went to, I went to the senior prom in high school. That's a semantic memory. It's a, you know, a general fact about your life. If you say, well, and then I, uh, I sat with so-and-so and -so at dinner. Is that now an episodic memory? I sat with them at dinner and we had roast beef. Well, now is it episodic? Uh, I sat at dinner, had roast beef, and talked about the Yankees. At this point, it's pretty clear that it's a specific memory. But when did it make that shift? Nobody really knows. Nobody really knows. And, and so 
Um, and then there are all these things that we do unconsciously that are also part of memory. So if I'm driving down the street, for example, in my car, um, my brain is seeing all these cars coming at me on the other side and you know things happening all over. But if everything is – if I've learned that that's how it's normally supposed to be by practice and by, by absorbing uh, that understanding, I, I'm not tense. If one of those cars suddenly – breaks the mold and comes heading right toward me, something is different and I've learned that that means I've got to wake up and, and take action. That's another form of memory. So th the numbers of forms of memory are many more than, than people had thought and the, the distinctions between them are now becoming murkier and murkier. One of the fascinating episodes in the book was uh, Lonnie, Sue's and Aline, is it? Oh, um, Aline, yes. Aline, uh, the sisters, uh, the death of their mother. Yes. And this is a uh, an event that happens after, well after she has had this condition, and yet she is able to form this new memory. Right. Her father having died much earlier, she had to be reminded of it many, many times before it got in there somehow that the father was gone. But the mother died and she knew it from then on. Right. And I th I think it, that is largely because, well, so when her father died, it was very emotional, but she had normal memory, right? And so so that memory was formed before she had her uh, her illness. And you're right. She was surprised to learn that her father had died 20 years earlier. And, and they had to, uh, the mother and sister had to repeat it many, many times before she absorbed it. But she wasn't in the moment of that emotional uh, turmoil when she was relearning it. With her mother, she was. So her mother uh, had a stroke and she was in the hospital and then she was in a hospice and Lonnie Sue was there the whole time and Aline was talking about what was going on and um, and she had very deep ties to her, both her mother and her sister. And so, but there was still a lot of repetition and a lot of reminders and um, because of the emotional content of this memory, or of this fact, it was it took hold more easily than it would have if it had just been a random dry fact about something. And we see that throughout research on memory that if it's an emotionally charged situation, uh, there's a much better chance of a solid memory forming. Right. But it's also possible to implant false memories using this same system. That right. That's right. That's right. Um, uh, so, yeah, so so that's another thing uh, that I knew something about but really learned much more about work on this book, the idea that our – the memories that we we um, intact people are certain that we have exactly right are almost certainly not exactly right um, because of the way memory is altered as you bring it up from the unconscious and think about it and talk about it and then put it back and bring it up again. It changes over time, and and um, the you know the best illustrations are those things that uh, psychologists call fl uh, flashbulb memories, memories of just world-shaking events like JFK being assassinated or 9/11 or the Challenger uh, crashing, and, and it's been shown that when people describe those in vivid detail, those details are sometimes are, are almost always wrong to some degree, and similarly. You can create memories that seem like real memories in people by uh, skillfully persuading them um, through therapy, uh, for example, 
that no, what you know, here's something that happened to you, and don't you remember? And Bugs Bunny, Bugs Bunny in the uh, the theme park. Yeah, yeah. That one one psychologist managed to convince people that they had been to Disney. Oh, this was the best part. Been to Disney World, and that um, Bugs Bunny had come up and licked them on the ear. Right. Right. And <laughs> and these people remember this, and they can describe it. And at first, they said, No, no, that never happened. But with the right kinds of persuasive techniques. It, it enters your mind and it actually becomes your own memory. And the crazy part is that Bugs Bunny is not a uh, Disney character. Right. So there's he no possibility in, that he was there. No possibility. You know, we're there. talking about a costumed costume, a, a right. worker in a costume. Right. Yeah. But it never happened. But it never happened. Right. People believe fervently that it did. Yeah. And uh, the, the uh, fallibility of memory really comes into play in things like uh, eyewitness testimony. Right. Right. A number of experiments, experiments have been done to show that eyewitness testimony is highly unreliable in most cases. Yeah. So you actually spent some time with Lonnie Sue. I did. Yeah. What was that like? Well, it was it was a little bit surreal. So so I had met her a couple of times in the company of her sister and her mother and the scientists. But Aline, the sister, said to me one day, well, would you like to interview Lonnie Sue? And I thought, that. Sounds weird, but sure. And so, um, so I went to her uh, the room where she stays, and I sat down and talked to her. And it's it was a surreal experience because, as I said, her language is intact. She's gracious. She's happy to see you. What's your name? She'd met me fifteen times before. What's your name? Oh, do you, you know, do you like music? And this is one of her uh, her uh, go to. Uh, questions. She loves music, so she asks you if you like music, and 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 you talk briefly about that. Uh, then she asks you if you like to draw, because she loves to draw. And I, no, I'm terrible at drawing. I hate drawing. Oh, I love drawing. And and um, she'll show me. She did show me as I was interviewing her some of these illustrated puzzles she was working on, and explained this very complicated. Uh, the complicated rules she follows. She's imposed on herself for creating these puzzles, which I, I could barely follow. Um, she showed me some books that she had illustrated because some of her own work is around the room. Um, uh, she talked about flying. Oh, I know. Uh, Aline had said, well, you know, she's interested in astronomy. You should ask her about that. And I said at one point, oh, I understand you like astronomy. And she said, oh, yes, you know, we're on the earth flying through space. And then she immediately started talking about flying because that's one of her comfortable places. So she segued right into flying. And that's when she uh, did one of these very poetic um, things that took me by surprise. She, she said, you know, flying is like playing the piano. And I honestly didn't know what she was talking about. I said, what, what do you mean? She said, well, when you're playing the piano, you have both hands on the keyboard and your feet on the foot pedals and you're swaying back and forth with the music. And when you're flying, you have both hands on the stick or the wheel and uh, both feet on the rudder pedals and you're swaying back and forth in the wind. And I was like, wow, that's, that's amazing. So every so often she would break out of her sort of routine questions and, and statements that she loved to go back to for comfort, I guess, and just say something out of the blue that was really, really meaningful. And really showed that there's deep inside the the person she always was is is absolutely still there. 
The book is The Perpetual Now, A Story of Amnesia, Memory, and Love, and the cover illustration. Tell us about that. So when Lonnie Sue came down with encephalitis, she could not draw at all for the first uh, 11 months or so after her illness. Then finally, with the urging of her mother and her sister, she began to draw and began to create word puzzles that she illustrated more and more elaborately. And now uh, she is back to creating these very uh, complicated and colorful and beautiful drawings, whimsical drawings. Whimsy was a big thing. Her sister, um, one of the things she used to do in her illustrations was there would often be little tiny people. Uh, just going about their business. And and uh, so that was a hallmark of her work. And at one point, Aline told me after Lonnie Sue had started drawing again, she said, you know, we never knew if she would get back to where she was. But one day, the little people came back. And then we knew it was going to be okay. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out the winning entry in a short story contest for fiction inspired by physics. For poetry inspired by physics, especially gravity, see such nursery rhymes as Rockabye Baby, Jack and Jill, and, of course, Humpty Dumpty. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 